Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. It's Friday, October 2nd. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Well, we're very pleased to be joined as an additional co-host this week by Ido. Ido, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me again. We're going to get on with our main conversation, which will be about Iran in a second. But let's briefly run through our moments of the past week. Emily, you have some breaking news. Yeah, so I last night when I went to bed, I was all set to make my moment of the week that um, the Texas governor was closing mail-in ballot drop-off stations and talk about a little bit about voter suppression in the U.S. But I can't do that because it turns out that President Trump has tested positive for COVID. We learned not from the White House, but from reporters that Hope Hicks, who works in the White House after working for Ivanka Trump in her in her pre-political life, got it and indeed apparently infected the president and his wife. We're, we're not sure what happens next and how this, not to be ghoulish about it, but how to how this affects the campaign. I just want to say that like if we were in a TV writer's room and Ido, you were like, well, I think on Tuesday, the president will downplay the pandemic and defend his handling of it. And then in the wee hours of Friday morning, he'll announce that he has it. I would be like, you need to get out of here. That's like, that's way too obvious and heavy handed. But 2020 is is a heavy-handed writer. One open question at the time of recording is whether or not Trump gave the virus to Joe Biden at the television debate on Tuesday. I understand yes. he's he's taking a test imminently. So Exactly. Apparently Biden is getting tested this morning. So my, my moment of the week, other than that, well, again, a rather a rather dark and morbid moment of the week. But the I think I think a really significant point was reached on Tuesday when the world reached one million deaths from the COVID nineteen crisis. And just a sort of a mark of how 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 lethal the the pandemic is, and actually a reminder also that the overall death toll has just been you know we talk about second waves, but the the death toll itself has and and the rate of deaths has has only really risen over the course of the past months, and it is entirely possible that this won't be the first won't be the only million; it will be the first million that die from coronavirus, particularly if collectively the world doesn't get a grip on it. There was an estimate out from the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation which is an institution backed by the Gates Foundation, which put the number of possible deaths by the end of the year, so only at the beginning of January, at anything between 1.6 million to an upper an upper 
bracket of 5.1 million. So a, a reminder really of the kind of the, the, the vast scale of this, this tragedy. So that I think is, is, is a significant moment in this, in this unfolding story. Ido, what was your moment of the week? My moment of the week was fighting breaking out in Nagorno-Karabakh on Sunday. Nagorno-Karabakh is a region internationally recognized as part of Azerbaijan, but uh, populated by ethnic Armenians and which, which has functioned as a breakaway state since the 1990s when there was a brutal war between Armenian forces and Azerbaijan over the territory after the collapse of the Soviet Union. And the conflict has never really been resolved. There have been occasional peace talks which have never got very far and occasional skirmishes, though this most recent bout of fighting is the most violent since the 1990s, almost certainly. It really, it really kind of shows that for one thing, one, one thing that's changed is Turkey's much more direct involvement on the side of its Turkic ally, Azerbaijan. So there have been accusations of direct involvement by the Armenians, though the Turks and the Azerbaijanis dispute this. Nonetheless, it's the, probably the most violent fighting for 30 years and definitely does has, have the potential to escalate with the involvement of regional powers other regional powers, including Iran, which I'm sure we're going to talk about. Yes, and we will certainly return to a discussion of Nagorno-Karabakh a little later in this podcast. But for now, we are going to introduce our guest this week. Ariane Tabatabai is a Mideast fellow at the Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is an initiative of the German Marshall Fund. Ariane, thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So you recently came out with a paper called Iran's Authoritarian Playbook, The Tactics, Doctrine, and Objectives Behind Iran's Influence Operations. And in this paper, you make, I mean, you make several points, but one is that the Iranian playbook is different from, for example, the Russian playbook. And before we really delve into the discussion, I was hoping that you could unpack that for us and, and speak about the ways in which the Iran playbook is unique. Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I was hoping to do with this paper was to kind of shed light on one of the key authoritarian actors that is trying to interfere and undermine democracies um, in Europe, in the United States um, and elsewhere, because it's not something that is really thought about as much. Right. Russia and to a lesser extent, but but increasingly China are sort of at the forefront of how we think about this issue. And so the idea was to kind of think about that a little bit more. And what was interesting kind of doing the research for this was realizing that actually Iran is trying to replicate a lot of what Russia and China have done, but Iran doesn't have the same economic resources. It doesn't have the same amount of political capital. And so its toolkit is much more limited. And that has actually translated into Iran's objectives also being much more limited because I think Iran, and you know, this is sort of a theme of Iranian security thinking in general, is actually quite aware of its own shortcomings and tries to kind of build its doctrine in whatever area we're, we're talking about around those shortcomings to try to address them and also to, to be able to sort of compensate for them, right? And so that's, that's one thing to consider. Uh, the second thing is, going back to your point, the paper is careful to say that Iran is not Russia at the end of the day, and Iran is also not China right now, and it's not going to be as sophisticated as either of those actors for the foreseeable future. And that's important because right now there is a tendency at times by the administration to sort of group uh, all those, China and Iran especially, as, as key threats in, in this space. And the argument here is that, listen, Iran isn't growingly a significant player, but it is nowhere close to either Russia or, or China, which doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything about it. It just means we need to contextualize it and not inflate the threat. Well, uh, yeah, and, and picking up on that, there's so much focus from 
the Trump State Department and for the Trump administration generally and the State Department in particular on Iran. If one were to listen to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, one could easily come away with the impression that Iran is like the greatest challenge to the United States. What, in your opinion, other than the fact that it's not Russia and China, does that kind of rhetoric get wrong about Iran and and the, the threat, as it were, from Iran? Yeah, that actually gets to the broader point about Iranian behavior, right? Now I'm not just talking about sort of Iran's cyber attacks and disinformation efforts and malign finance that are designed to kind of undermine trust in democratic systems, but I'm talking about Iran's foreign policy and national security policies more generally. And here, again, I think that there is a tendency to kind of overhype the Iranian threat. I tend to think of Iran as you know, often more of a troll than it is a a vital national security threat, which doesn't mean that it doesn't pose challenges, right? Iran has done a fair bit of destabilizing activity in the region. It certainly has fueled ongoing conflicts in, in its region and has contributed to the mass atrocities that have been committed in places like Syria and places like Yemen. So, you know, this is not to undermine what Iran is doing. But from a pure U.S. national security standpoint, Iran is nowhere close to the other countries that the Trump administration's own national defense strategy and national security strategy outline as key threats, which include Russia, China, Iran and North Korea. I mean, three of those countries are nuclear weapon states, right? Nuclear armed states, and Iran is not. And so, you know, again, I think that it's important to sort of calibrate and think about that threat in its context and to realize that there are a number of things that Iran does that are challenging and we should be tackling them. But I don't think that the rhetoric that we've heard over the past four years and the sort of maximalist objectives that have been laid out by the Trump administration that at best include a big overhaul of Iran's, all of Iran's policies. And at worst, I think, would include essentially crushing Iran into collapsing as a state are particularly helpful to attaining U.S. national security objectives. I mean, I'd like to just sort of to, to, to ask a bit briefly about, about the Iranian perspective on this before we come back to the view in Washington. I mean, it's interesting you describe Iran as a, as a sort of troll rather than a, but rather than any sort of superpower. And it takes me back to where we were at the start of the year before we were discussing coronavirus and the the killing of Qasem Soleimani by US forces in Iraq. And as I understand, his his role had essentially been, as as Iran's top general, had been to direct this, if you want to call it, trolling around the region. He'd you know he'd, he'd led Iran's proxies in Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq. But you know, in, in all these cases, it was sort of it was using militia groups. It was sort of it was in many ways, a sort of asymmetric sort of military involvement in Iran's neighborhood, seemingly designed to give it a sort of a stake in these countries and, and I guess kind of advance Iran's interests in its sort of standoff with, with Saudi Arabia and, and its allies. First of all, I, I'd like to know sort of what exactly does Iran want in its neighborhood and in the world? Is it simply about creating sort of buffers around its own borders to protect it from what it perceives as as threats? And to what extent is that actually debated within Iranian political and, and religious circles? I know I know that there's a spectrum of views in Tehran, ranging from more dovish ones to more hawkish ones. I'd like it if you could just sort of give us a picture of, of, of how Iran sees its position before we, we come back to the US perspective. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a pretty broad topic because, I mean, you know, I, I wrote my new book on the topic of how Iran thinks about its own place in the world. 
and how it, its national security decisions are made, right? And the, the, there are a few things I think to unpack here. The first one is that, you know, Iran historically as one of the sort of big powers of, of the region believes today, as it has for centuries, that it sort of has this right to continue to be a key power, a key force to be reckoned with in its region. So, you know, I think that regional hegemony, even though that's a, that's a term that I think hawks often use to kind of point to Iran's malign activities, actually does capture in part how Iran thinks about its role in, in its region. Uh, the second part of it is that the way Iran sees itself is as a fundamentally vulnerable country. And that's because of a number of reasons. One is that it is sort of a minority, to just put it in very broad terms, it is a majority Shia, majority Persian country in a region that is predominantly Arab and Sunni. But there's also the historical experiences that have shaped Iran's thinking about its place in the region. This is a region where you've had a number of powers, uh, big powers operate for centuries. And as a result of that, though Iran has never been formally colonized, it has often become the sort of theater for big power competition. And it's often lost elements of its own sovereignty to various foreign powers. So Russia, Britain, later on Germany, the United States, uh, and now China have all played a pretty big role in shaping Iran's not just security and foreign policies, but even its internal dynamics for centuries and centuries. And that has made it very difficult for Iranians to, and this is, you know, we now talk about this Iran-China deal and Iranians lose their mind every time that is mentioned. It's because of the fact that they have this uh, deep fear of losing their sovereignty. Can you just um, elaborate on, on, on the Iran-China deal? I mean, is that a growing partnership in reality? Yeah. So, I mean, it is a partnership that has existed for a while. China, over the past two decades especially, has really, really cemented its presence in, in key sectors of the Iranian economy and increasingly in other sectors too. So just before the killing of Soleimani in uh, December 2019, you had the drill that was performed by Iranian, Russian, and Chinese forces in the Persian Gulf as sort of a sign of, you know, these three countries now being operating more closely together. Uh, you also have the political sort of interdependent, well, one-sided, I guess, interdependence that Iran has with China and also with, with Russia. And in the case of China, you know, they're now involved in key areas of Iran's energy sector, telecommunication sector, infrastructure, and so on and so forth. And so this, this 25-year Ch- Iran-China deal that was announced a couple of months ago, is kind of formalizing a lot of these uh, these initiatives. I have to throw a grain of salt on this and say that we actually don't have all the details of this deal yet, even though it's very much captured the, the popular imagination in, in Iran. And also in, in the United States, there's been a lot of media commentary about uh, what the deal does and doesn't do, although it's final version hasn't been signed, although a lot of its provisions are still very much work in progress. And ultimately, most of them sort of point to more negotiations to settle the final details. But nonetheless, I think it does indicate that you're seeing a movement toward a consolidated sort of and strengthened relationship between the two sides. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman on digital, in print, or both, from as little as £1 a week at newstatesman.com slash subscribe. That's just $2 a week in America. You've sort of hinted at the isolation and the kind of fear that Iran has. And I, I wonder if you could talk about the role of 
the JCPOA in this, and particularly the fact that the US withdrew from it a couple of years ago, but European countries have sort of tried to salvage it and work without the US to maintain the deal. Looking at it kind of from, from the perspective of Iranians and the Iranian government, do, do they feel that if the JCPOA had succeeded, or maybe even without the US, they can still kind of participate in kind of rejoin the, the international community and become a kind of normal country, as it were? So this ties perfectly to the previous question, because, you know, actually part of the reason why Iran decided to return to the negotiating table after several years of a lull in 2012, initially for secret talks with just the United States and then eventually with the broader, you know, the Europeans, Russia and China uh, and what's called the P5 plus one in, in 2013 part of it was that, you know, you had these backbreaking sanctions, international sanctions at the time that were imposed on Iran. And you had this sort of what seemed like an imminent threat of war uh, of uh, the United States or Israel or the two of them together striking Iranian nuclear facilities. And, you know, I think that was very much seen even in the United States as a matter of when rather of a matter of if the United States or Israel would strike Iranian nuclear facilities. But another part of the reason why Iran came back to the table was because it had increasingly become reliant on China and on Russia, because when other countries withdrew from Iran, and I mean here specifically the Europeans, because of the the impact of sanctions, decided to sort of withdraw from the Iranian markets, decided to dial down their cooperation with Iran on a number of fronts, politically, economically, etc., Iran became increasingly reliant on on Russia and China, and it resented the fact that it was reliant on Russia and China, both because of the historical sort of distrust that exists, especially with with Russia, right? The country, Iran has lost major territories to to Russia over the the past centuries and and wars with with that country. Iran has uh, various times in its um, history over over centuries had to rely on, on Russia and has inevitably been disappointed. And the Russians have tried to interfere in Iran's affairs quite a bit. So there is this deep distrust that exists between the two sides. And with China, there was this sort of sense that the Chinese were kind of, I guess, exploiting perhaps Iran. They were leveraging the fact that Iran was isolated. So they would make promises and then they wouldn't deliver, uh, which is another reason to be skeptical of this 25-year deal. But they wouldn't necessarily provide Iran with the with um, you know high standard projects, goods, infrastructure. Uh, and so the Iranians were really upset that they couldn't really work with anyone else, that they couldn't balance Russian and Chinese influence in their country. And so they decided to return to the to the negotiating table because they saw a nuclear deal as a potential way to kind of create more diversified relationships. And that's been actually a quest in Iranian history for, again, decades and decades. It is not even new to this to this regime. It is something that is very much deeply embedded in the way Iran has thought about its relations with foreign powers for, for a number of centuries and, and decades now. And so Iran returned to the negotiating table. It, sh- it signed the JCPOA in 2015. And that seemed to open the door for, as you were saying, renewed engagement with the world. And now Iran was, you know, you had all these MOUs that were signed by European companies, especially every other week you had European leaders who traveled to Iran and and Iranian leaders who traveled to Europe to sort of show that, you know, Iran is open for business and the country is reintegrating their, their national community. 
And of course, President Trump was reelected, was uh, elected in 2016. And after sort of a bit of a back and forth for a couple of years on what to do with the nuclear deal, he decided to withdraw from it in 2018. And since then, the Europeans have been in this very awkward position of, on the one hand, wanting to preserve this deal because it, you know, it meets their national security and European security considerations. It keeps Iran away from a nuclear capability and also having to sort of, you know, they, they have worked toward this deal. They believe that, you know, their credibility depends on maintaining this deal and this deal advances their national security. But on the other hand, of having to also work with the United States under this administration, and there's already this sort of deep distrust between President Trump and key American allies. The president has made it quite clear that he doesn't really see alliances the same way his most of his predecessors did. And so they're in this awkward position where they have to balance what they want to do with regard to Iran, what they want to do with regard to the JCPOA, and of course, uh, sort of keeping President Trump somewhat happy. Just while we're on the, the the nuclear deal, I mean, is it fair to say that Iran is holding to its side of it? Because you do read a lot of reports that it's it's returned to producing the weapons grade uranium that it's that it's meant not to be under under the deal. It's true that the US has pulled out, but there is still this, as you say, there is still this this notion that that the deal lives on in the European Iranian dimension. Does it exist really on the ground in Iran where the nuclear weapons program is concerned? So just to clarify, so Iran hasn't returned to producing weapons-grade uranium, right? What it has been doing is increasingly pushing the limits of the JCPOA and violating provisions within the JCPOA, for example, by building a stockpile of enriched uranium above the limit that was allowed by the JCPOA, by undertaking enrichment activities in a facility where it wasn't allowed to do that under the JCPOA. So it's taken a number of steps to kind of dial down, I guess, its compliance with, with the deal as a way to signal to the to the United States, to the Europeans and to their national community more generally, that, you know, it doesn't have to sort of suffer quietly and passively, that it too has tools at its disposal that it can use to frankly, exercise pressure on the United States, on Europe and, and the, the global community. So that's what it's been doing for the past since May 2019, which is when these steps started to kick in. I think from the Iranian perspective, what's happening is that, you know, they're waiting like the rest of us to see what happens in November um, in the United States. President Trump, of course, you know, his Iran policy is known at this stage. I think there's still a few scenarios that can sort of unfold if he is reelected for a second term, which we can come back to. But Vice President Biden has been very clear that he would want to return to the deal. And so I think the Iranians have chosen not to withdraw from the deal and not to sort of try to inflict a completely devastating blow to the deal, but rather to take these incremental, mostly reversible steps in order to be able to return to it should a Biden administration come to power and so that they can see if they can actually return to the deal and, and receive some of the sanctions relief that they were promised initially. So I think you're right. The decision in Iran right now is to kind of preserve the deal, see what happens. And then uh, I'm not sure that what's next has been fully decided. So I was actually going to ask you, I mean, I mean, back in January, right, I thought that the big story of the year was going to be U.S. and Iran tension and escalation. And obviously, then we got a global pandemic, which slightly changed the course of events. But I, I, I wanted to ask, is there a way for the U.S. and Iran to come back from the brink? You know, you mentioned a few scenarios if Trump is reelected. Are there any of those in which 
things de-escalate. And if, if on the other hand, Biden is elected and says, yes, we're going to rejoin the deal, is American credibility on that now gone? Yeah, let's start with the, I guess, easier answer of what happened Biden is re-elected, right? You know, I, I think it will be a, a challenge for the United States to regain some of its credibility with regard to Iran, but also actually more so, I think, with, with regard to our allies. The mm-hmm. Europeans, again, have been in this very awkward position for for nearly four years. And now the, the hard job of First of all, rebuilding that alliance is going to be key. And it's not just about Iran. It's more generally, you know, four years of, of Trump have really kind of um, thrown a, I guess, you know, widened this gap between the two sides. And so Biden and his administration will really have to do the hard work of re- uh, revitalizing that that alliance. And then when it comes to Iran, the second part of this will be to try to get the two sides to rebuild a consensus on Iran, which Trump has completely destroyed prior to Trump's withdrawal from the JCPOA. You had quite a quite a consensus when it came to Iran. That's how the Obama administration was able to impose not just U.S. sanctions, but international sanctions, and was able to get Iran to come to the negotiating table. Iran has largely benefited from this gap that exists between the U.S. and its allies, because it is able to say, look, the U.S. is isolated. And it's not wrong, because just a few weeks ago at the U.N. Security Council, 13 of the U.N. Security Council members voted against the United States, with only the Dominican Republic public standing with the US. So, you know, the, this isolation is not helping the Trump administration's uh, Iran policy, but it's certainly helping Iran in, in this whole equation. The the more challenging question is what happens if Trump is reelected? And there, I think we can look at a few scenarios, right? One of them would be that Trump continues what we've seen over the past two years, continues maintaining the maximum pressure campaign on Iran, continues to impose uh, whatever sanctions he can impose, whatever designations he can add, and wait and see if the Iranians eventually just kind of give up and come to the negotiating table. The risk, though, is that maybe Iran will eventually come to the negotiating table. And I think that that might very well be in the books. But before that happens, I think that you would see a uptick in an activity and escalation again, because the Iranians would want to regain leverage. And how do they do that? Well, they break out of the limits of the nuclear deal even more. They harass the U.S. Navy in the Persian Gulf, in the Strait of Hormuz. Uh, they also, by the way, go after U.S. allies and partners in, in the Gulf and in the Strait of Hormuz. They also have their proxies continue or increase attacks on U.S. diplomatic facilities, U.S. forces. And there's a number of things that they can do that you know I may not even be thinking about right now, because if you'd asked me... In January 2019, what Iran would do in response to the maximum pressure campaign, I wouldn't have guessed half of it. <laughs> so there is a lot of things that they can certainly do to make life a lot more complicated with a, for a potential second Trump administration. The sort of flip side of it is that, you know, it is possible that the Trump administration will decide, or President Trump rather, will decide that, you know, he's been reelected. He doesn't have to worry about reelection. He doesn't have to worry about, you know, playing tough on, on Iran. And maybe he will try to sort of replicate what he did with North Korea earlier in his administration and tried to get sort of a quick and frankly, not very powerful deal with Iran. And there, you know, again, it it remains to be seen whether the Iranians would be amendable to that. I have one last question, which is in the reporting that I have done on this, the fear of people who either watch the region closely or, you know, are Iranian American and have, have family there is not that one of the two sides will declare war, but that they will stumble into war 
Mm-hmm. I mean, do you share that concern? Yeah, 100%. I, I think there are elements on, on both sides who wouldn't mind a, an actual war, right? There are former uh, Trump advisors like former National Security Advisor John Bolton, who has a long track record of advocating for regime change in Iran and more forceful action against Iran. You also have Iranian hardliners, for the lack of a better term, who see a conflict with the United States as allowing them to to rally people around the flag as the Iran-Iraq war did in the 1980s. You know, this is right after the revolution. Iranians are largely divided. And then a foreign adversary launches a, a military attack against their country. And all of a sudden, people just kind of give up on their own, put aside their own differences to rally against this one adversary. And, and I think that that is sort of the hope that some have within Iran, that actually more U.S. forceful and uh, belligerent kind of activity against Iran would allow them to, to recreate that kind of environment. But I would say by and large, I, I don't think that either side really wants a conflict. President Trump has made it clear that he doesn't even want to continue being in the, in the wars we're actually involved in, let alone starting a new one. And that's sort of driven and shaped some of his decision making around the tensions with Iran over the past few years. I think that the challenge, though, is that you can end up inadvertently stepping into a broader conflict, as we did multiple times over the past sort of year, year and a half, when somebody takes some sort of action thinking they will achieve one thing, and then they achieve completely something else. And and that's especially risky to countries like the US and Iran that barely have any diplomatic relationship. I mean, they have no direct channels of communication at this stage that we know of. Everything essentially is going through the Swiss who are uh, securing American interests in, in Iran. And that makes it really challenging. You know, part of Just to give you a quick example, in 2016, two U.S. Navy boats kind of entered into Iranian waters, and they were close to this IRGC base, so an Iranian military base. And they were captured by by the guards. In any other situation, I think that could have really ended up poorly uh, for both the sailors involved, but also for for the United States more generally. And what happened, though, was that because Secretary Kerry had created this channel of communication with his Iranian counterpart at the time because of the JCPOA, he was able to secure their very quick release without a major incident. And right now we're lacking that sort of channel of communication. So if something like this happened tomorrow with U.S. Navy sailors in the Gulf or, you know, some sort of broader tension in Iraq, I would be really concerned about what happens next. Okay, on that completely bone chilling and deeply harrowing note, it is time for a section that we like to call You Ask Us. Really well done, Jeremy. Thank you very much, Emily. So our You Ask Us question this week is, will the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict escalate into outright war? And it's a very good one for this week, given that we have Ariane on board and Iran is is, is a player in this. But first, I'm going to turn to you, Ido, as you've been leading our, our, our new statesman coverage of this. Can you just first of all, give us a quick outline of what the conflict is about? Because it's there's quite a few different moving, moving parts. And then I guess your, your take on that question, where, where you think things go next. Yeah, absolutely. For anyone who isn't a complete nerd and has no idea what this is. In the modern era, the conflict begins under Stalin's rule when the South Caucasus, which today is the countries of Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan, was part of the Soviet Union and the Bolsheviks were deciding how they were going to draw the borders of what turned out to be three countries. And they included within Azerbaijan 
this region, this kind of mountainous little sliver of land that was majority Armenian and it was going to be autonomous and, and they gave it to the Azeris. And so, you know, for about 70 years, while all three countries were part of the same state and there was no borders between the countries and it didn't particularly matter that Nagorno-Karabakh was formally within Azerbaijan because, you know, they, people could travel around and go to Armenia and there were no borders and so on. But when the Soviet Union collapsed, or slight, in fact, slightly before, the Armenians of Karabakh decided to ask for union with Armenia and later declared unilateral independence. And Armenia and Azerbaijan fought a pretty brutal war which had ethnic cleansing on both sides. Uh, so Armenians driven from Azerbaijan and ethnic Azeris driven from Armenia and Karabakh. And it ended up with, in a kind of stalemate where the self-proclaimed Republic of Artsakh, which is the Armenian kind of Armenian-backed kind of puppet state, controls Nagorno-Karabakh and Azerbaijan claims the entire territory controlled by Artsakh as part of its sovereign territory. And so the, the most recent bout of fighting is about kind of Azerbaijan claiming that the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh should be reconquered and included in the territory of Azerbaijan and writing what they see as a historic wrong. And it's and it's been really pretty severe fighting already, hasn't it? I mean, I I noticed that there've been a quite significant number of, of fatalities already. What's your take on the question? Do you think it could escalate in, into a full war between Armenia and Azerbaijan? Yeah. So so there are two things that are important here. The first is that. This is almost certainly the most violent fighting for 30 years. So since the 1990s, when there were, during the war about 30,000 people died, and as I mentioned, there was ethnic cleansing on both sides. There have been occasional skirmishes since, but this is almost certainly the most violent fighting uh, for 30 years. And the second is that this had always been, at least in the modern era, this had always been a kind of fairly localised conflict. It was a very violent conflict and with deeply held emotions and feelings on both sides, but it was always between... Armenia slash Armenians and Azerbaijan. And, you know, both countries had allies, but no no other countries were kind of that directly involved. And this has really changed this time, in particular because Turkey has offered pretty much unconditional support to Azerbaijan and has, according to some reports, been organising the transfer of Syrian mercenaries to Azerbaijan to fight Armenia. Armenia claims that Turkish armed forces and air forces uh, the Turkish Air Force is operating directly in the conflict against Armenia, though this is disputed and I believe remains unconfirmed. So those are the two factors which mean that this is a lot more serious than it was before. So, for instance, earlier this year there were small skirmishes, but this is on a much, much larger scale. And if it does escalate, it will be because of the involvement of external actors, so spearheaded by Turkey, but also potentially with the involvement of Russia or probably on the side of Armenia, or also Iran, which is also quite closely allied with Armenia and maintains good relations with Armenia. So on that, on that point, Ariane, first of all, what's, what's your view on, on our question this week? Do you, from your perspective as, a, as, a, as an Iran expert, I mean, do, do you see it escalating further? And also, how do you see Iran's role in this? Because, I mean, I, I wonder if it's perhaps the wrong way to see this, to compare Iran's interest in this conflict to its proxy activities in its Middle Eastern neighbourhood. Tell me if you disagree with that, but it seems to me that this isn't like Iran's involvement in Iraq at the moment or, or Yemen or whatever, but be interested to hear your views on that. 
I actually agree with everything you just said and everything that's been said so far. I, I also worry about this conflict right now, more so than, you know, normally with sort of skirmishes that, that take place because of all the reasons that have been mentioned. I think from the Iranian side, yeah, I think this is different from how Iran is operating in conflicts like Syria and Yemen and, and so on. You know, in countries like Syria and Yemen, Iran doesn't have a ton of direct national security threats, right? It does to the extent that it is trying to push back in Yemen, a rival Saudi Arabia. It's trying to undermine that that rival there. And in Syria, it, it has interest in, to the extent that it has one of its only, if not the only real Arab ally it has had uh, in the Assad regime that is under threat. But in terms of direct implications for Iran's own national uh, security and its borders and its population, there are no no such threats, right? Whereas in this conflict, I mean, this is happening in Iran's immediate backyard. And it's not just happening in Iran's immediate backyard. It's happening in an area where Iran has overlapping ethnic minority with Azerbaijan. And, and, you know, Armenia and Iran have very strong ties. You have an Armenian minority that lives in Iran, that has uh, lived in Iran for, for a number of years, you know, fairly deeply rooted population there. So this is a conflict where Iran actually has a lot at stake. And if it does escalate further and it drags in a country like Turkey, which uh, Iran has very complex ties with, but that is a, a major regional power, and potentially Russia, one of Iran's key partners, which, you know, as we've, we've said, is, has had a very tense relationship with, with Iran, th- that has massive implications for, for Iranian security. So actually, unlike some of its involvement in other countries, you know, again, from Syria to Yemen, Iran has played a largely stabilizing role, which I would say in in that region, Uh, similar, I I would say to Afghanistan, where Iran, again, has played a much more stabilizing uh, and positive role, although there have been negative components of it. So I think from Iran's perspective, this is this is not a good situation. And it's very challenging, because on the one hand, Again, Armenia is a key Iranian partner, historically so. There is a minority that that lives in Iran. And so Iran has typically sided with Armenia. But at the same time, it has a very complex relationship with, with Azerbaijan, in part because of the sort of overlapping, you know, Azari ethnic the ties that exist between the two countries, which have also in part driven Iran's threat perception from Azerbaijan, because Iran believes that Azerbaijan is trying to sort of leverage, exploit the Azari minority in, in Iran. Azerbaijan has sided with Israel in the, the sort of tensions between Israel and Iran over the years. So Iran is, has had a complicated relationship with Azerbaijan. But again, it, it also is concerned about, in part because of its own ethnic minority, to not be too overtly anti-Azerbaijan. And again, in part, it is trying not to see further escalation between the two sides. Thank you very, very much for that explanation. And 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 for our, our final segment of the podcast, Diane, we'd like to go to you first to ask what you'll be looking out for in the world or whether it has to do with, with Iran or, or something else next week. Well, <laughs> so right now, I guess for, for those of us who live in the United States, especially in Washington, the main thing is the elections, right? And so next week, we're going to have the second debate in this election. And that's the, the debate between Vice President Pence and Senator Kamala Harris. <clears throat> and I'm looking forward to that because I think in part, it may be a bit of a palate cleanser after the really brutal debate we had between President Trump and Vice President Biden this past week. 
but also because it might actually be more substantive and we might actually get to hear about some of the policy differences instead of the sort of shouting that we were suffering for about an hour and a half last week. We will actually be live blogging that vice presidential debate uh, as we did the first brouhaha this past week. And so New Statesman listeners, readers can can look out for that. I'm going to jump in because I was going to say the vice presidential debate. But since that has been taken, no, I'm just kidding. I will continue to watch what I was going to make my moment of the week at the beginning of this podcast, which is attempts to make it more difficult for people to vote in the United States. Uh, I mean, I really think that this is not going uncovered, right? Obviously, I know about it because people are reporting on it. But I think that there's this tendency in the United States to say, like, if you don't like it, vote, you know, get out and vote. And what that misses is that there are active efforts to make it more difficult for people, particularly in, in cities and in democratic areas, to get out and vote. Ido, what is what will you be looking for next week? Moving around slightly, I will be looking at the French overseas territory of uh, New Caledonia, which is having a second independence referendum. I think this is really interesting because France, perhaps more than any other country on earth, has these kind of little bits and bobs left over from the French empire. French politicians slightly disingenuously like to say that France is universal because it is present on five continents so there is literally french sovereign territory on five continents and therefore that's why france's universalism works and this will be the first time in quite some time that one of those could go independent first for quite a long time yeah it'll just be interesting to see whether this is kind of another nail in the coffin for the remnants of probably the most long-lasting colonial remnants in europe thanks for that and my, my moment of the week it's not it may not be in the next week by the time listeners get to this, because it's it's tomorrow as we record this, but uh, still a, an important one, is the 30th anniversary of German reunification is on Saturday, the 3rd of October. A very important commemoration for, for Germany, naturally. I will be looking out for Angela Merkel's doing a an event to market in Berlin and a kind of an interesting chance to reflect on Germany's role in Europe and indeed the world, particularly, I think, particularly looking ahead to the US election, what being watched very nervously from here. So that's that's what I'll be looking forward to. With that, we let us thank our, our guest. As a reminder, she's Ariane Tabatabai. She's the Middle East Fellow at Alliance for Securing Democracy, which is an initiative of the German Marshall Fund. We will link, when we publish this podcast, we'll link to her paper, which is Iran's Authoritarian Playbook, The Tactics, Doctrine, and Objectives Behind Iran's Influence Operations. Ariane, thank you so much again for being with us today. Thanks again for having me. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks very much, Ariane. And, and that paper will be up on our podcast page, newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review hyphen podcast, along with all our other uh, back issues of this podcast. So look out for that to read more. If you enjoyed this podcast, please like, subscribe, tell a friend, sworn enemy. And you can also, you know, if this is the kind of content that you enjoy, subscribe to the New Statesman World Review newsletter, which you can do at newstatesman.com slash world hyphen review. Thank you very much also, Ido, for joining us. Thanks for having me. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thanks for listening and until next week. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 